I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Welcome. Hey, guys. Thought you could join me today. Sorry for a bit of a delay getting started right there. Let me tell you what we're doing right now. I think you're going to find this really, really interesting. Um, You will not believe what Joseph Smith added to the Bible, and I mean literally added to the Bible a lot of stuff. Um, We're talking here about the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. That's Joseph Smith, the founder and prophet of the Mormon church. This guy started Mormonism, wrote the Book of Mormon, wrote the Pearl of Great Price. He's like the guy who gave the Mormons their new scriptures. And he made his own translation of the Bible. Well, parts of the Bible, not the whole thing, but a lot of it. But there is a reason that the LDS church, the Mormon church, never talks about this book. Because it has very revealing issues in it. And so we're going to talk about that today in the uh, the Tuesday live stream I do pretty much every week dealing with issues of theology and apologetics. That is what we believe as Christians and why we believe it or giving a defense of our faith uh, where we try to learn how to think biblically about everything. So welcome. If this is your first time joining us, um, my name is Mike Winger and I do this all the time on uh, online. I try to uh, present a good reason for the Christian worldview, a good explanation of the Christian worldview and all that. You can subscribe if you want to get notifications when I make new videos. And I strive to make sure all my content is free and available to everybody all the time. Now, if you're a Mormon, if you're LDS, I want you to know something right off the bat. I care about you. I I really care about you. I have Mormon friends, grew up with a lot of Mormon friends, actually. And I'm not bashing you. I'm not hating on you. Um, This stuff, though, that I'm about to share with you is true. And it's really, really important that we honestly and factually deal with these issues. We can't just pretend like it doesn't matter. We've got to care about truth, right? If Joseph Smith was really a prophet, I want to submit my life to what he says. And if he's not really a prophet, then I want to rescue you from what he says. And that's kind of how extreme this stuff is. So um, as a Mormon, you have been taught that the Bible is corrupted. That the, the Bible, the, the books of the Bible have, have had additions and changes and subtractions over the years. This is actually a really common old wives tale that goes around even nowadays, belief that the Bible's just been radically changed over the years. Um, that's completely unsubstantiated. In fact, we have great proof that that's not the case. Um, in fact, after this video, I'll put a link in the description that's a, a series of videos where I teach about tough textual issues and how much has the Bible been changed over the years, all that sort of thing. I'll put that in the video description for after, uh, after I'm done. But if you are a Mormon, you have been taught that the Bible has been corrupted and that the Mormon Church is is the safe place. Like if you're part, if you're if you're a Mormon, you're part of the LDS group, then you are rescued from the corruption of the Bible because the Mormon Church was able to restore the gospel and restore the truths of God. And I'm not exaggerating. If anybody's not Mormon, um, let me just make the case for you, so that the non-Mormons and Mormons can be on exactly the same page. Here's Article Eight in the Articles of Faith of the Mormon Church. It says, "We believe this is an LDS." statement of faith. We believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. And that is a really important phrase. I'm going to share other quotes from Mormon sources to talk about that. But as far as it has been translated correctly, we also believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God, period. No qualifications there, right? No caveat. There's the Book of Mormon. It just is the word of God. No changes need to be made. 
Although over the years, the Book of Mormon has received lots and lots of changes. If you get a hold of an old Book of Mormon compared to a new one, you'll see that the the racism that's in there has been systematically pushed aside and altered so that it wouldn't per- be perceived that way um, and other other issues as well. But the uh, the Book of Mormon, it's perfect. The Bible, however, it's got issues. Let me give you more details. See, Joseph Smith, he thought he would rescue the Bible and or rescue us from the Bible, I guess, from the corruption in the Bible. And that's why he made his own Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. You can actually buy it on Amazon. But this is what LDS.org actually says about the Joseph Smith translation. It says the prophet, that's speaking of Joseph Smith, he's just called the prophet. The prophet's main work of revising, correcting, or translating the Bible was done during the three-year period from June 1830 to July 1833. During this time, he and his scribes went through the Old and New Testaments of the King James Version. Notice they didn't go to the original sources. They just read through the New King James, or excuse me, the Old King James Version. He didn't know Hebrew. He didn't know Greek. He didn't have any of those manuscripts available to him. He just looks at the King James Version and then makes changes. Right? And they produced nearly 500 pages of manuscript, which you can buy, like I said, online, uh, containing thousands of variant readings and new passages. Did you see that? New, the Joseph Smith translation has literally whole new passages, whole new sections of the Bible that did not exist before that clarify and enhance the message of the Bible. The eighth article of faith declares that we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. The translation of the Bible by Joseph Smith shows much of what is meant by that statement. Okay, so this is LDS.org commenting on the LDS article of faith. When they say, as far as it is translated correctly, it's a reference uh, to how Joseph Smith in his Joseph Smith translation fixed the Bible. Okay, that's the claim going in. Um, but this is all, this is not only in the article of faith and on LDS.org, it's actually in LDS scriptures. This is from the Book of Mormon. From 1 Nephi 13. It's a prophecy talking about the times of Joseph Smith, supposedly. Now, he, he claims the Book of Mormon comes from, you know, pre-Christ times. And then he finds it and gets these golden plates and he translates them. That's one of the scriptures of the Mormon church, the Book of Mormon. That's the one they always give you. Now, the thing is, if you read the Book of Mormon, you don't really learn a lot about Mormon teaching or theology because there's not a whole lot of theology in it. There's little things like what, what we have on the screen here, and I'll read to you in a second. But the real Mormon theology is found in like the Doctrine and Covenants, um, some of the, the Pearl of Great Price, the Book of Abraham. Then there's some real changes in theology. The Book of Mormon is more just a long story that was meant to explain Native Americans and their sort of experiences with God since they were more recently discovered on the scene of Western culture. And, uh, and he thought he could explain that. And that was kind of one of the, the, the things that drew people to uh, Mormonism. So 1 Nephi 13, here's what it says. Wherefore thou seest that after the book hath gone forth through the hands of the great abominable church, that there are many plain and precious things taken away from the book, which is the book of the Lamb of God. Now there can be no argument here. A, a Mormon would agree with me. This is, this is their interpretation, not just mine. The great abominable church, that's the first century church. That are you know, and and those shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then carried on, and so you know, Joseph Smith said all denominations were abominations. He thought everyone, the Mormon Church didn't originally want to be called Christian because they were anti-Christians. They were like, we are not, 
we're right, everyone else is wrong. Nowadays, it's totally changed, right? New Mormonism is totally different than old Mormonism. And new Mormonism is, is more like saying, hey, we're Christians too. We're all Christians. We just have a little more information than you. Originally, it was, you guys are all an abomination to God. We've got it right. You're all utterly wrong. So it's more PC nowadays. Um, in fact, that's probably, it's the PCification of the Mormon church is what we've been seeing over the past like 30 years or so. But it says, so the, the abominable church that loses things from the word of God, the book of the Lamb of God. Many plain and precious things taken away from the book. So there's a statement in 1 Nephi 13, written by Joseph Smith, you know, 1800 years after Jesus. And he's saying that the Bible has all these missing pieces. And what Joseph Smith is doing is he's, he's setting us up so that later he can add stuff. He can bring new things because he goes and writes a book and goes, yeah, that's, that's from before Jesus. And it talks about how there'd be missing stuff in the book. Then... We read about this in the book of Moses, also from Joseph Smith, where Joseph Smith writes in chapter 1, verse 40, And now, Moses, my son, I will speak unto thee concerning this earth upon which thou standest, and thou shalt write the things which I shall speak. Now, people didn't talk that way in Joseph Smith's time, by the way. He wrote this way because the King James Version sounds like that. Thou shalt standest, that sort of thing. And he thought by making it sound like the King James Version, it would make his writings look more like scripture to basically the simple-minded. And um, and so they actually have a term for this. I forget it off the top of my head, but there's a term for it. And it's, it's like the the literary feel of scripture. As you read the book, it just feels like the Bible because it has like thou and thicket and things like that in it. In verse 41, it says, And in a day when the children of men shall esteem my words as not, and take many of them from the book which thou shalt write. Right? Moses is the guy he's being, who's supposedly being spoken to in this book. He's going to write what, what the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And according to Joseph Smith, much of that is going to be taken away. So they'll be missing things from Genesis. Remember that, Genesis in particular. Behold, I will raise up another like unto thee, and they shall be had again among the children of men, among as many as shall believe. And that's supposed to be about Joseph Smith. So Joseph Smith first started by writing um, prophecies about himself in the new scriptures that he was giving people. Now that should raise some red flags if you're LDS and you're alive at the time. You're like, oh, Joseph Smith has these new prophecies and they seem to be about him but they're predated. He says they're from before his time. That's really convenient. Um, we all, I think we all agree prophecies written after the fact aren't prophecy. <laughs> that don't count. Um, but he even calls himself in verse 41 of the book of Moses 1. He says that he, Joseph Smith, is the prophet like Moses. Now, this is really important. Actually, I mean, I'm doing a whole Jesus in the Old Testament series right now online. So you can actually go to the study where I talked about Jesus and Moses I guess if you type, you know, Google like Mike Winger, Moses and Jesus or something, you'll probably find it. But I dealt with how Moses is, is like Christ. And one of the ways we establish that Moses is like Jesus is Jesus is the prophet like unto Moses in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, there's a prophecy specifically about Jesus. Joseph Smith takes that and applies it to himself. And to me, that's a, a scary thing. But Joseph Smith then, he comes and he provides the, the, not only the Book of Mormon, but he then goes back to fix the Bible and basically rewrite the text of scripture. Except there's some issues you guys ought to know. One, right? Joseph Smith does not speak Hebrew. Two, Joseph Smith does not speak Greek. 
Three, he doesn't speak any of the other languages we find in the in the Old Testament, like Aramaic or uh, a few Persian or, or other words like that. He doesn't speak any of those things. Instead, what he does, like I said, he just opens the King James Version and he just sits there and he just starts rewriting it. And he doesn't just change mild little things. You can actually go onto LDS.org and you can actually go look up the Joseph Smith translation on the official Mormon website and you can read some of the changes he makes. But I'll show you specific ones. And the final one, the last one I'll show you, is where Joseph Smith literally adds himself into the Bible in a new section of the Bible that never existed before his time. And it's pretty... It's pretty crazy stuff. It's damnable is what it is. It is absolutely damnable. If you're Mormon, please, oh, please hear me out. Please listen to me. I am very much against Joseph Smith. And that's why I'm telling you this because I'm for you. I'm for you and to get you out of these lies and maybe help you get your own family and your friends and your loved ones out of this, this twisted religion that Joseph Smith started for his own sake. He's not the hero that they say he is. And we have proof. And here's, here it is right here. So, what did Joseph Smith do to John chapter 1? In John 1, 1, in the Joseph Smith translation, it says, In the beginning was the gospel preached through the Son, and the gospel was the Word, and the Word was with the Son, and the Son was with God, and the Son was of God. If you have spent any time in the Bible, you already know what's wrong. This is a famous, famous passage in the scripture, John 1.1. 1, 1. Let me bring it up to you in the ESV. John 1.1, 1, 1, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, how many words is that? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's 17 words in the entire verse. Here's the Joseph Smith translation. I'm not going to count those. <laughs> But let's just say it got a lot longer. In the beginning was the gospel preached. Okay, so it should say in the beginning was the word. In the, in the Greek, it's the word logos. It's just a word meaning word. <laughs> That's what it means, word. But he, but he translates the word word as gospel preached through the son. And then he said, and it doesn't say in the word was, was with God. It goes, and the gospel was the word. That's totally added. And the word was with the son. What? That's completely fabricated. And the son was with God and the son was of God. Now there's, anyway, let me just say this without getting into a full on study of Christology. This is damn you straight to hell theology. That's what this is. You've taken the identity of who Jesus is, ripped it out of John 1 and replaced it with nonsense. This is worse than the Jehovah's Witness translation, which is pretty extreme, pretty extreme. This is one of the reasons why they don't use this translation because even in the ancient Greek, there is no justification of any kind for this sort of thing. Let me take you to another passage because what Joseph Smith did was he brought new teaching and new theology and he decided after a while that he was just going to take that teaching and stick it in the Bible because some people were like Bereans. What they do, the Bereans, in, in the book of Acts chapter 17, we read about these Bereans. Paul the Apostle, that means they were people living in a place called Berea, so were Bereans. Um, he goes out to Berea he sh or to share with these people and they hear him preach the gospel and then they go away and it says they search the scriptures daily. So they have like scrolls and stuff and they're looking at the Old Testament and they're confirming that the things that Paul says are true. Meaning that even Paul's gospel, they tested it with the Old Testament and they're lauded in scripture. Like the Bible's like patting them on the back. Good job, Bereans. You checked even the gospel message. You checked it with the Old Testament. Good for you. 
And so then they converted and became Christians. Well, some people in the days of Joseph Smith Jr. were saying, hey, man, um, how do you justify all of these changes? Where do I find your new teachings in the Old Testament or even the New Testament for that matter? So Joseph Smith had a solution because his teachings simply don't exist in the Bible. He would just change the Bible. And here's another one of those places where he changes the Bible. Now, um, hopefully you will, you will, you will catch this, but this is a confusing passage, right? The Bible uses the word heavens in the plural, because I believe it's talking here about, uh, birds flying in the heavens. There's like stars and, and the sun and stuff up in the heavens. And then finally God's dwells up in heaven. So there's different levels of heaven, but we're only talking about like atmosphere, outer space, and then God's, God's dwelling place and God's presence. But look at what he does trying to teach a new Mormon theology about these three levels of heaven, which are all three spiritual levels that have nothing to do with the biblical terminology. He changes 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians 15 verse 40, it says, Also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial and bodies telestial, but the glory of the celestial one and the terrestrial one another and the telestial another. And if you're like me going, okay, celestial, I know what that means. Terrestrial, terra means of the earth, earth, right? So, so celestial of the skies, right? Of the, of, of the heavens and the terrestrial of the ground. What's telestial? Well, telestial is a word he made up to, to make a third level of heaven that is just another place you might be able to go when you die. So he sticks this into 1 Corinthians 15, 40. And if you have any doubt about what he's doing, the heading that's provided, it says there are three degrees of glory in the resurrection. So he interprets it for us. We have the LDS interpretation. Now let's look at this text in the actual word of God, in the actual Bible. So 1 Corinthians 15, 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of, is of another. But then it goes on. It explains, right? The glory of the sun, the glory of the moon, the stars. The bodies here are not talking about, about human bodies, right? It's talking about the, there's differences between things in space and things on earth. And they live in a different kind of environment than us. And so, like, I couldn't live in space. I can't live on earth. The sun wouldn't, wouldn't work out on earth and vice versa. And so, in the same sense, we will need a new body for our eternal glorious like heaven existence, although we won't be in heaven, read Revelation, heaven comes to earth and all that glorious stuff. But no, 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 no. This isn't heavenly bodies, earthly bodies. No, no, this is, in fact, let's add a third kind in there. Let's just change the text entirely and make it about degrees of glory, celestial bodies, terrestrial ones, and telestial ones, new made up word, just stuck right into the text of first Corinthians 1540. Now at this point, I want to respond to an objection. Um, so if you were raised LDS, and probably if you just are not really familiar with Christianity, not really familiar with the Bible, you kind of have like a pop understanding, popular understanding of these issues, you're thinking, oh, come on, Mike, the Bible's been corrupted. Everybody knows that, right? Um, Mormons, generally speaking, are taught that the Bible has been radically adjusted and changed over the years. It's like the telephone game. The problem is that's utterly false. Like this is just, you 
don't know what you're talking about if you think that. Um, so what I've done though is I've gotten an actual Mormon scholar, a guy who knows the ancient languages and lectures, and he's literally a Mormon apologist. So I have a clip from him where he's going to talk about this passage, 1 Corinthians 15.40. And in this passage, he's going he's gonna to give the, um, oh gosh, I, I meant to write his name down. I've got it. Oh yeah, it's Kevin, Blar uh, Kevin L. Barney. And you can, you can just Google him. Wikipedia page will show that he's, he's a Mormon uh, apologist guy. So he's talking about why 1 Corinthians 15.40 was this way in the Joseph Smith translation. Like, why was it this way? So listen to his explanation because it shows you that it's not because the passage was corrupted. His explanation is, he says it in a nice way, right? Because he wants to encourage Mormons. But it's very revealing about what's actually happened here. Let's listen to it. On February 16, 1832, the prophet Joseph received what we call the vision, DNC 76, which was inspired by his work on the JST of John 5.29. Okay, so far he just says, hey, the supposedly the prophet received this vision and it's been inspired, inspiring uh, him sort of creatively thinking about the Bible in new ways. And this vision has to do with these levels of heaven. So let's keep listening. A couple of weeks later, Joseph dictated the revisions to 1 Corinthians 15, and in verse 40, he harmonized the text to match DNC 76 by adding the neologism telestial to the Latinate terms celestial and... Neologism? Is that what he called it? That means new word. <laughs> Neo means new. Right? Logos means word. Neologism. That is just scholar talk for he made up a word. That's all it is. Let me back... I'm going to back it up. I want you to hear him say it again because it's, it's scholarly blinders being pulled over the eyes of the uninformed so that they can feel like a smart guy told me I can trust this. But what he's really doing is in a convoluted way, admitting that Joseph Smith made it up. So listen in. First Corinthians 15, and in verse 40, he harmonized the text to match DNC 76 by adding the neologism telestial to the Latinate terms celestial and terrestrial. This is a classic illustration of the Matthew's category of harmonizing the biblical text to conform to one of the prophet's uh, modern revelations. Did, did you hear that? Harmonizing the biblical text to conform to one of the prophet's earlier revelations. That is just a fancy way of saying that here this Mormon scholar apologist guy says straight up, Kevin, Kevin Barney says straight up, Joseph Smith changed the Bible to fit with his prophecies. That's all that is. And neologism and all the, all the fancy way he puts it doesn't help. Now, this is in, in the course of a whole video where all he's doing is he's just trying to explain the passages that Joseph changed. And in many cases, he goes, I think he improved the translation here. I think he helped here. But when he comes to the place in 1 Corinthians where Joseph is actually adding Mormon theology, he's not just tweaking the text randomly. He's like adding theology. He just admits this is just, it's harmonization, basically, he just made stuff up, invented new words, stuck it into the Bible. Let's look at another example. And after that, I'm going to show you, after this one, I'll show you where he added a whole passage to the Bible to say that it was prophecy of himself. And this is so caught red-handed, right? So caught red-handed. Um, false, false prophet, hands down, no question about it. Um, so, But let's look at another theology thing he added in Hebrews 7.3. This is about the Melchizedekian priesthood. Now, in, in Mormon theology, um, Melchizedek is 
a, a different character than he is in Christian theology, right? In Christian theology, he's a type of Christ. Some think he's a Christophany. I actually have a video on that too. You could just search Melchizedek in my name and it'll pop right up. But, but in Mormon theology, there's a continuing priesthood of Melchizedek that all of the men are able to participate in. They're able to be part of this priesthood, potentially at least. And, um, and so he, he changes the text because in Hebrews 7, 3, it's all about Jesus and Melchizedek. He wants to open the door so he can say that this is a continuing priesthood, that Mormons have a special priesthood that nobody else has. In fact, it becomes a point of pride for Mormons. We have the priesthood and everybody else doesn't. Uh, the truth is, it's just an, it's a fabricated priesthood. It doesn't exist. So Hebrews 7, 3 in the Joseph Smith translation says, For this Melchizedek was ordained a priest after the order of the Son of God, which order was without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Notice the phrase, which order was. He makes it so that there's an order. It's not that, that Melchizedek was without father, mother, or descendant. That's what you'll see in the any, any other translation on earth, we'll say. Um, but it's, it's the order that is without father, mother, or, des, or descendant. Um, and then, and all those who are ordained unto this priesthood are made like unto the Son of God, abiding a priest continually. So now there's future people who will be ordained like this Melchizedek uh, person. And so let's look at this in, I don't know, any other version on the planet. So here's Hebrews 7, 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Notice the subject is Melchizedek, the entire sentence. It's Melchizedek. He was king of Salem, which means king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy. He's resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever, but not so the Joseph Smith translation. Melchizedek was ordained a priest after the order for, of the Son of God, which order, now there's a new order, uh, and then all who were ordained under this priesthood, he specifically adds phrases to just add his theology into the Bible so that people can't argue with him about it. It seems painfully obvious Joseph Smith invented new unchristian teachings and then changed the Bible after the fact because it would expose he's wrong. You see, guys, the, God has given us one thing to protect us from false teaching, and that is the word of God. We have the Bible. This protects me from the false teaching of the false teachers. The minute they start twisting and changing this text, I lose my protection against their false teachings. So anyone who makes their own translation to support their own sect is incredibly suspicious. By the way, if you haven't seen my Passion Translation video, please go watch it because it's it's not as bad as this. It's not, but it is very bad and it is very much concerning to me. I'm going to do probably more content on that maybe next Tuesday on the Passion Translation. Um, uh, another translation made to support a sect. Um, but in the Hebrews 7.3 passage, we also have confirmation that, of course, he really is just using this to change and get his Melchizedekian priesthood teaching into the Bible because it's introduced on LDS.org um, and in their printed versions of the Joseph Smith translation by saying Melchizedek was a priest after the order of the son of God. All those who receive this priesthood can become like the son of God. Now that phrase, like the son of God, that is Mormon theology. They think they can be exalted themselves and become a God when they die. One of the things you've got to do if you want to become a God when you die is you have to be Melchizedekian priest. Do you see how much wacky, wacky, yes, wacky, unbiblical, fabricated theology is being crammed into the passages that Joseph Smith translated 
without any knowledge of Hebrew or Greek, without any reference to any ancient text. There's no variant in the original that compares to these issues. All right, now, if you guys have questions, you can start loading them. I'm going to answer them in a few minutes. But first, let's look at where Joseph Smith adds his own stuff to the Bible in order to try to make make it look like he's prophesied. But But first, I have to take you... So you know what this looks like. This is Genesis chapter 50. In any other Bible, it ends with verse 26, right? Then you have Exodus, okay? Verse 26, Genesis 50, 26, and then the book of Exodus, but not so in the Joseph Smith translation. There are 12 new verses after verse 26, 12 new verses that add content to the end of Genesis. Now think of the pressure Joseph Smith was under in his time when he was thinking, hey, I, uh, I got people, you know, they're, they're really listening to me. They're really believing what I'm saying, but they're, they're asking me to prove that I'm in the Old Testament. They say, hey, Jesus, he had all these prophecies of him in the Old Testament. Joseph, where's prophecies of you in the Old Testament? So we came up with a couple examples. He took a vague phrase about the stick of Joseph and the stick of, of, of Ephraim. And, and it was like talking about the, the tribes of Israel. And anybody who examines it realizes it has nothing to do with anything like him. Um, so he just, he goes whole hog in and he says, I'm just going to change the Bible. So here we go. Genesis chapter 50, verse 31. 31. You may have a hundred translations on your shelf. You will not have a single one that has Genesis 50, verse 31, unless it's the Joseph Smith translation. Wherefore, the fruit of thy loins, and the, the one who's being spoken to, is Joseph. So Joseph, who has this whole, like he, he's brought into slavery, he comes out of slavery, he delivers a lot of the people of Israel. Beautiful story. I have a video on that. <laughs> Sorry, I pitch all my videos. Um, but it says, Wherefore, the fruit of thy loins shall write, and the fruit of the loins of Judah shall write, and that which shall be written by the fruit of thy loins, and that which shall be written by the fruit of the loins of Judah, shall grow together unto the confounding of false doctrines. Now, let me, let me just translate. The fruit of the loins of Judah would be the Bible. Brought to us the Hebrew scriptures. Then there's the fruit of the loins of who? Joseph. Who's that fruit going to be? Joseph Smith. He tries to connect himself to Joseph genetically. He actually claims to have some Jewish ancestry. There's a whole debate on that. And then um, some go really weak on it. And they go, oh, he, he just has the same name as Joseph. <laughs> they go, yeah, that's how he's the fruit of his loins. Anyway, so then they'll grow together. When you combine Joseph Smith's writings and you combine the Bible, then you can confound false doctrines because he'll... Basically, you actually create false doctrines, but and laying down of contentions and establishing peace among the fruit of thy loins and bringing them to a knowledge of their fathers in the latter days and also to the knowledge of my covenants, says the Lord. And out of weakness, he shall be made strong in that day when my work shall go forth among all my people, which shall restore them who are of the house of Israel in the last days. Remember, they're called latter day saints because they think in the last days was the time when Joseph Smith showed up. Verse 33, and this is, this is the key verse. Here's Joseph Smith in the book of Genesis, only in his own translation. <laughs> and that seer, I will bless. That's him. That's Joseph Smith. And they that seek to destroy him shall be confounded. Actually, people, a mob killed him and they weren't confounded. Um, that's the actual history of it. But for this promise I give unto you, for I will remember you from generation to generation. And his name shall be called Joseph. And it shall be after the name of his father. Now, Joseph Smith was actually Joseph Smith Jr. And so he's named after his father. So that really narrows it down. How many Joseph Juniors are there? 
Um, that's, that's me speaking on behalf of the Mormons side there. Uh, and he shall be like unto you for the thing which the Lord shall bring forth by his hand shall bring many people unto salvation, many people unto salvation. That is where Joseph Smith quite literally just makes up a whole extra chunk of the Bible to write his own name in literally his name will be Joseph named after his father, Joseph Smith Jr., and then, then people can't argue with him anymore, right? Except he, he reached too far. He overreached. Now, you might be thinking, as, as like I said, Mormons have often been brought up, like many other people, to think that the Bible's just been utterly corrupted over time. And you might think, no, somewhere in, the, in, in there, somewhere you know, in ancient times, there's a manuscript of Genesis that has those extra verses, Mike. You're just, you don't know. You're not a Greek and Hebrew scholar. You, you don't know ancient writings like that. Well, the good news is this, is that nowadays, right now, today, we know more about ancient writings than we ever have before. And in 1948, over 100 years after the time of Joseph writing his, his new translation of Genesis, they discovered the oldest book of Genesis in Hebrew that they'd ever found before, and Genesis 50 was in it, right? This was in the Dead Sea Scrolls that were stored near the Dead Sea in Israel, um, this is this is an amazing, amazing discovery. It had been preserved over the years because it's such a salty environment there. And um, anyhow, Genesis 50. So you, they unroll the scroll and they read it and it ends with verse 26. That's it. The Septuagint, even older of Genesis chapter 50. Does it have anything past verse 26? No, nothing, not a thing. There's just nothing there. In fact, let me quote to you again from that same Mormon scholar who's trying to answer the question about whether or not the, the Joseph Smith translation is actually fixing corruption or is he just adding stuff. This is what he says, and keep in mind, he's trying to keep Mormons Mormon, but he can't help but admit some of the truth. Here's what Kevin Barney says about that. But well, when we just say all these JST revisions are, are, are fixing corruptions in the text, uh, that's just a, a, a wide-ranging assumption, and I, I don't think that's a, a good way to go about it. I, I think we need to get into the details. Why do you think there's a corruption of the text there? And in most of these cases, I, I don't think he's responding to a corruption. I, I think he's responding to a problem in the King James Version, and he's fixing it. He tries to rescue it at the end, but before the rescue, he just admits he's not responding to a corruption. In fact, you could probably say in no case is he responding to a corruption of any kind. Um, really, he's, re he's responding to a problem in the King James Version, except in Mormon teaching, a problem in the King James Version is that Joseph Smith says it should be different. So this is kind of circular reasoning. The problem is stated by Joseph Smith. It's confirmed because Joseph Smith said it. And now you see this article of faith, why this is so important in LDS teaching. We believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it's translated correctly. Well, Joseph Smith supposedly translated it correctly. He's the prophet of the Mormon church. And he wrote his own name in there. But we can prove that that was not a translation. So there's actually Mormon scholars now who debate like, well, you know, when we say translate, we don't really mean translate like from one language to another. There may have been a divine inspiration where he was bringing whole new information. And so here we go again into where oftentimes in Mormon theology, there's a different a whole different dictionary where you use the same word and it, it just in Mormonism translate means, you know, he just writes whatever God and tells him to write, whether or not it represents the original. Whereas to everybody else, it means, you know, going from one language to another. That's what translate means. 
Um, so there you go. There you guys go. I, I hope that this is really helpful for you. And especially, look, if, if you're LDS, there's a good chance people in your life, they also know it's not true. But they're so swamped into the social culture of Mormon teaching and Mormon people that they love and care about that they're, they're not willing to say out loud that it's not true, so they don't take a stand. The problem with that is that you just pass it on and you put the burden of the lies of Joseph Smith, you dump it on the next generation and the next generation. There are a whole group of Mormons who are old and who have studied these issues and have realized it's not true and they don't care. Please don't be like them because that's just choosing a lie. You're just choosing a lie. Instead, we need Mormons to rise up and speak openly, lovingly, but speak firmly against the teachings of Joseph Smith to rescue the Mormon church from the lies of a false prophet. And so um, thank you guys so much for your time. I'm going to take your guys' questions right now. So I appreciate you being here. Um, this is so far, hopefully a shorter stream. I actually wanted to go a little bit shorter today. So I intend, intend to do that. That's my plan. Um, okay, so Juan Polgarin, this is the first question I've got. It says, hey, Mike, what is the best way to let them realize that the Book of Mormon and Joseph's translations are adding to the Bible and that the Bible speaks against adding and taking away from the word? Um, I think, I mean, hopefully showing in this video is great because what I'm doing here is I'm quite intentionally playing clips from a, a Mormon apologist so that as I say these things, I know that excuses are coming up in their minds and I'm letting their own guys answer those excuses because I want them to realize it. So I think maybe sharing this video, and I hope you guys would, I hope this is something you could share and you could give to others and it could be done in a loving way. Um, but also something you could do is just go get like seven or eight Bibles and then get the Joseph Smith translation and compare it to them. You know, you can even do it on your phone. You can get the Bible app and do it. Show the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis 50 and then show them like 10 other translations and ask, how come nobody else translates it that way? And just start putting that seed in their mind um, to hopefully get hopefully get them thinking about it. And of course, pray for them. I mean, ultimately, the work of the Holy Spirit is going to be the biggest thing. Dustin Busa uh, says, Is there a way, just like evangelism to, J to JWs, that you can use Mormon scripture to evangelize to Mormons? Any tips for disarming them against me? Um, you know, because I have a video online where I, and I, and I encourage it in a couple different videos I've done, where I encourage witnessing to Jehovah's Witnesses using the New World Translation. You could... So standardly, Mormons don't actually use the Joseph Smith Translation. You'd think they would, right? Like if I was Mormon, I'd be like, how am I not going to use the translation Joseph Smith gave us? Um, but they generally don't use it. And the reason is because it's it causes more problems than solutions for them. Even though it puts their theology in the text, it's so easy to prove it that it's wrong and that he lied that um, it it's backfires on them. So they don't really use it at all. Um, probably, I'd imagine there's some Mormons who have never even read it. Many Mormons probably have never read it at all. But, but so then if, if you want to go for translation, they accept the King James Version. They already accept that. If you want to look at the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, I feel like those things are so steeped in false teaching that I wouldn't recommend using them at all. So... I would just go uh, for the King James Version uh, when witnessing to Mormons. Matthew Hernandez says, Can you explain how we know that God is is done writing the Bible? Um, that's a really great question. So the idea is this. is like if somebody showed up right now, and like Joseph Smith, and says, I've got new revelation. 
I'm going to write it down. It's new scripture. I need you to believe it. What reason do we have to reject that person? Well, I'll start off by saying this. Like, I reject by default, right, anybody who comes to me saying I got new teaching. Like, I need a good reason to believe it. I don't just accept it automatically. That would be, I think everybody would agree that would be utterly foolish. Um, now, when it came to the Old Testament, let's just think historically, how does God reveal his word to people, right? So he has the whole story of Exodus, massive, massive miracles, undeniable miracles witnessed by all of Israel and Egypt. And then he uses Moses and the, and the, the whole, like, you know, the pillar and the 10 plagues and all these, the splitting of the Red Sea. And then Moses comes and his face is literally shining as like a reflection and afterglow of God's glory. And then he reads to them God's words. So obviously, if you're in that generation, you're like, we received the word, you know, like, no, there's no doubt about it. If Joseph Smith did that, that would be pretty impressive. Um, now for later generations, what we have is prophecy. We have fulfilled prophecy, other miracles, but mostly I think fulfilled prophecy is the thing that connects it and proves that the, uh, that Isaiah was from God, that Ezekiel was from God. There's short and long-term prophecy that fulfill it. Now I'm not going to expand, expound on that a bunch because this is just a Q and a part. I usually keep the Q and a pretty quick. Um, but fulfilled prophecy was, was really important for the people in, in the post mosaic days. Okay. Then what we have is we have Jesus show up. Jesus shows up and he doesn't come into a vacuum. We have all these Old Testament scriptures and those Old Testament scriptures are prophesying tons of stuff about Jesus. Then Jesus dies and he rises from the dead and he sends his disciples out with signs and wonders and miracles with the fulfilled prophecy of the Old Testament. And so they come out with, with Christ's authority. They write the, the New Testament and we go, we have every reason to accept the New Testament. Now there's a difference now between how we sit today versus how they sat in the first century. In the first century, they were looking at the Old Testament with all these prophecies of the coming Messiah. They were expecting something. And in fact, they expected it in the first century, in the timing that it came. But what are we expecting today? What are we, are we expecting new scripture? Are we expecting new revelation? Well, how does the, how does the, how does the Bible end? It ends with the end. It's like the next thing I'm expecting is judgment and is, is Christ's coming. My expectation is not for more prophets who will deliver new information. Rather, it's for the coming of Jesus Christ. So the Bible seems to have set up, now let me summarize. The Bible has set up for us the expectation not for new scripture, but for the actual revealing of Christ to the world um, and his coming. Because of that, I don't look for any new scriptures. I don't have the situation like I had in the first century. Um, so that, there we go. That's, that's how we know. <laughs> In short, I probably could answer that better. One day I should do a video on that where I kind of unpack it even more carefully. But I think that that gives you something to grab onto. From Prager Frogger. Mike, a bit of a tangent, but have you read that logos or logos means word, uh, but did already have a very messianic driven connotation in the Greek world? Yes, uh, I've read that. So to catch anybody else up, there's a guy named Philo and he used the word logos to refer to... Um, some really specific things that really are similar to what John talks about in, in John 1. And I haven't studied a bunch into Philo to answer this question, but with little I, little work I've done, I think, here's my general thought. Uh, Philo uses the term, and John also uses the term, perhaps perhaps aware of how Philo used it and aware of how it was how it was how that was perceived in his culture. But he then takes it and, and he gives it a specific meaning about Jesus Christ so that we find the meaning of Lagos, we find the real true meaning of that in 
the Gospel of John where it's used more than we do by looking at Philo. Um, so it's 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 kind of like even the term pleroma. Okay, I, I might lose people here, but there's this group called the Gnostics, and they believed in something called the pleroma. And the pleroma was this big sort of. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna use clumsy terms here because I do not want to try to explain all of Gnosticism right now. But they believed in in basically like a a sort of um, a plethora, a bunch of gods and deities and and divine emanations that existed. Imagine if you had like this big circle. In the middle is this one really awesome, powerful being, and then there's a bunch of others that just get worse and worse the further out you go, and they're emanated out. They're called the Pleroma in Gnosticism. Well, that's false belief, right? This is a false, polytheistic, weird belief system, and the Bible's against this. But in Colossians, it says that in Christ, all the, all the Pleroma, all the fullness of deity dwells. Why does it use the word pleroma? Because it's, it seems to be hijacking the term from sort of early or proto-Gnostics, forgive the terminology, guys, uh, but proto-Gnostics or early beginning stages of Gnosticism. It like hijacks their term, their term pleroma and it just kind of like destroys it by saying, whatever you're thinking is divine, it's all in Jesus. So it doesn't affirm the existence of the pleroma. What it does is it steals it away from them and it, and it, and it claims that all this stuff is in Christ. So Lagos, similarly, doesn't affirm exactly Philo's usage. It sort of steals it away from everybody else and says, ah, you know that idea you got Lagos? Yeah, that's Christ in the beginning was the word. So hopefully that is uh, useful for you. Um, question from uh, Leighton. Leighton says, hey, Mike, uh, I love my pastor, but I have seen that he doesn't talk about hard issues like cults. I feel thirsty for more. Do I take him aside silently? I ask this because he hasn't sinned against me. Um, I, I think that a couple things I mentioned to you, Leighton. One is this, is that when you, when you, and this is for everybody, when you see something missing in your local fellowship, like something in your church or in your pastor's teaching that's not there that you think should be there, it might be a good solution for you to help provide that thing. Because you just find that not everyone's, as a teacher, there's just, I'm not really capable of teaching every topic and on everything. Um, and if, if I was your, your pastor and you were sitting under my teaching for like 30 years, guaranteed there'd be gaps. You know, you'd be like, oh, I'm kind of missing out on this or that. Mike doesn't really do this thing very well. But what I would do as a teacher is rather than try to do everything, I would really like to have other teachers come alongside me and for them to help kind of fill in where my weaknesses are and I could fill in where theirs are. So my best solution is if that's if that teaching's missing in your church, how about you study a bunch on whatever cult you think is affecting your church, say it's Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, and and you prepare and you say, Hey Pastor, could I could I prepare and share on this? Or or hey, I'd love it if you could find someone to do it. And that way it doesn't put it all on your pastor and um and you can kind of work towards a solution there. I do think that it'd be good to talk to him about that privately, of course. Private private discussions allow people to change their minds more easily than public ones do. <laughs> that's for sure. So that's a good wisdom there, Leighton, I think. Um, Juan Polgarin says, uh, why does Mormonism keep changing with time? If it's the truth, wouldn't it stay the same past, present, and future? But it keeps changing to fit modern times. It sure is changing, and it's changing so fast. Basically, if I can tell you what's going on, like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses are, 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 are like a great example of two, two total opposites. Over time, Jehovah's Witnesses are just getting like more hardline and more insulating. 
and like controlling information. You're not even allowed to, don't Google Jehovah's Witness. Like if you're Jehovah's Witness, they tell you, don't even Google it. You're not allowed to find out. Mormons, they're going the other way. So JWs are still very conservative in their in their orthodoxy, if you could call it that, right? J, J, I don't even want to call it orthodoxy, but, but their original teachings, they're very strict and they generally hold to those. Mormonism is totally shifting the other way. They're going totally liberal theology. So they're they're radically changing their views on things. Um, they've literally altered the Book of Mormon to adapt to times. And they no longer have a lot of the hardline stances they used to have. Like uh, black people in the priesthood is an example. Previously, you couldn't be in the priesthood, in their fake priesthood, if you were black. Which, take it as a compliment, guys. It just means that, you know, less of, less black people are targeted by their group. <laughs> That's not considered a compliment when it's a cult. But anyway... Um, yeah, they, they, you know, you're not going to be targeted. That's fine. But, but you can't be part of their group. Well, you know, in the sixties and the whole culture shifted and changed rightly. So racism is, a, is a, uh, it's such a stupid thing. Um, if you're a racist, you're, I'm just being honest with you guys. If you're a racist, as much as you're a racist, like that part of you is not Christian. <laughs> it's just, yeah. But anyhow, um, they've changed. Now blacks are allowed in the priesthood. They have new light, new revelation. And so they, so they have a habit of changing with the times. When polygamy was, was a big issue in the Mormon church, Brigham Young, the second leader, and maybe the most important leader they've ever had, maybe more important than Joseph Smith, right? Second president of the church. Brigham Young said, if you didn't practice Mormonism, you could not be exalted. If you, if you didn't practice polygamy, excuse me, if you didn't have multiple wives, you could not be exalted to become a God and you were a bad Mormon. That was his statement. But Mormonism, they said new light, you know, the, the U.S. government tells us that we're going to be in a lot of trouble if we keep doing this polygamy thing. So we have new light. Um, no more polygamy, guys, at least not physical polygamy. They still practice spiritual polygamy. So if your wife, if you get married in the temple and then your wife dies and you get married in the temple again, now you have two in heaven. That's their belief. Um, so then they shift it with culture again. Now, in the meantime, splinter groups break off. So you have like the reformed Mormon church and other like smaller like splinter groups break off and they go back to the original teachings as much as they can but the the big bulk of mormonism is the liberal shifting group nowadays um all right so astrohead says this is regarding your debate on matthew 24 um by the way i did i did a debate yesterday yeah yesterday on the uh the remnant radio's youtube channel and it was on the topic of Matthew 24 in times debate. And we talked about whether or not that chapter has already happened or if it's yet to happen. Um, there's a lot more detail to be said there, but it was a, me versus a partial preterist. I'm a futurist. And you're welcome to check that out. It's on the Remnant Radio. That's the name of the YouTube channel. And it's a video that just popped out. I don't endorse every guy that shows up on that show on the Remnant Radio, so don't get the wrong idea. But I appreciate Josh, who's running, really running the program and his his desire to do what he's doing is really good. And I'm, I'm really behind that. Um, so the question is, do you think that the word is intentionally vague or poetic as some believe about topics of such? Um, okay. So about Matthew 24, I don't think that it's so much vague as it is um, applicable to more than one thing. I think Jesus said something in such a way that it would be protective like, I think he meant to warn people of 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem, and to warn of the future coming of Jesus Christ. I think he just meant to do both both things. Now, there may be other passages, there certainly are, that are vague. 
but I think this one's actually fairly specific and it's because it's so specific that I think that it is not yet fulfilled. Um, number eight, Israel Silva says, do you think it would be better to tackle down their doctrine at the very core of it, proving with the Bible that Joseph Smith never saw God and Jesus? I think it's just, Israel, I think it's different for every person. Most Mormons though that I've run into, they their beliefs are not based upon, um, I read it in the Bible and so I know it's true. And so using the Bible to prove them wrong, sometimes it just doesn't matter. Mormonism really, really preaches uh, feelings-based faith. Feelings-based faith. That's something that I'm not into, but feelings-based faith, it's all about that. And so they'll preface everything with like, oh, you know, ultimately, you know, you know, it's true by faith. You know, it's true by faith. We don't know things are true by faith in that sense, biblically, but that's the Mormon view of it. So you might deal with, how fickle people's emotions are or, you know, the, the burning in their bosom and ask them questions. Um, but I don't have a pat answer on, on witnessing to Mormons. I wish, I wish I did. I wish I had like a, a quick do this every time. Um, I feel like it's easier with Jehovah's witnesses for some reason. Number nine, uh, they're all numbered here. The questions, which I appreciate. <laughs> Iglesia, uh, militante, um, says, uh, Mike Winger, how can we respond to the claim that Luther also claimed to be a restorer of the church? I don't, I don't, uh, let me say two things. This is talking about Martin Luther and the Reformation. I don't care what Luther claimed. Um, I believe the Bible and my theology is not based on Martin Luther. He's, he's not a replacement for the Pope, you know? <laughs> and, but on the other side, I'll say, I don't remember hearing about him claiming to be a restorer of the church. Um, the idea of, of the Reformation was to the text. I mean, that's a phrase they would say in Latin. Uh, I forget what it is in Latin, but they would say to the text, to the text. You know, we want to go to to the actual Bible. And so he translated the Bible into German, published it for his people. He wasn't the only one. There was actually a lot more people involved. We tend to give Luther credit, but it was a whole movement of a lot of people whose names you've never heard. Um, so yeah, I, I don't really feel like I have to defend Luther and I don't think it's wise to do so. Um, I want to learn from him, but I don't want to be a defender. Um, Heather Forrester says, oh my gosh, one word there, oh my gosh, can't believe I caught you live, love your teaching, Mike. Oh, thank you, Heather, appreciate that. Um, I'm glad you guys caught me live, it's great to have you with me. Uh, make me muscular, it said, uh, asked a question, <laughs> I like that, can you make me muscular while you're at it too, that'd be great. Um, hey Mike, what's your opinion on Ellen G. White? I'm SDA, Seventh-day Adventist, and she's basically accepted as a prophet by the church. Her work isn't held as part of the sacred canon though. So I haven't really studied it. This is one of those moments, make me muscular, where I, I go, I haven't really spent a lot of time looking into Ellen White. I've looked into a little bit of her stuff. And and it's like, on one side, I go, I find it very suspicious, but I haven't examined it enough to form an opinion. And I'm afraid that I'm going to have some kind of clout with whatever I say out of my mouth right now that... Um, that will cause you to take my words to be the simple facts of the matter when I haven't done the homework yet. So one of the things I try to do is I try to protect you from my bad ideas by making sure that I filter and vet my information and I just kind of teach one thing at a time and make sure that I prepared it well and make sure I know what I'm talking about. At least that's my hope and my goal. I want my teaching to be reliable. One day I'll probably look into LNG White. It's definitely on my list of things that I've been asked to do and that I'd like to do. Um, but I haven't spent the time on it. In the meantime, I would recommend um, 
uh, gotquestions.org is a fantastic website and they research their stuff really well in my opinion. I'll bet you they have content on her that you might look at. Karm.org, I also really like um, uh, Matt Slick's website, karm.org. They have lots of lots of good information on there. Don't take anything as the word of God except the Bible, but there's a good resource for you. All right, well, you guys, um, I'm going to call it a day. I, I wanted to get a little shorter. I don't want my streams to keep getting, you know, past the hour mark every single time. And I really appreciate your time. I want to make sure it's all jam-packed with useful, good content. Do me a favor. Share this content with somebody. Do you know someone who's Mormon? Why not just step out of your comfort zone and ask them to watch the first, at least the first half of this video and say you want to talk to them about it afterwards and say you're just really concerned because of the things that you heard and you'd like to know their opinion about it and see if, if perhaps it might make a difference for them because um, it's, a, it's a false prophet with a false gospel, a false religion. It is as bad as it gets. Um, it really is. Next week, I will be live again on Tuesday. My plan is to do um, probably more on the Passion Translation because just like the, just like the Joseph Smith Translation, playing fast and loose. And, um, and while the Joseph Smith Translation is much worse, um, the Passion Translation is, it is an up-and-coming sectarian twisting of the scriptures in my opinion and I found more stuff in it that alarmed me and you guys know me I I'm not the alarmist guy right I ignore most of the stuff people are freaking out about <laughs> I just ignore it this stuff matters this is this is stuff worth talking about and worth putting our foot down on and fighting the battle so uh, Lord bless you uh, be in the word um, just you know be serving the Lord and I'll see you guys next Tuesday